News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Christina Greer here with Harry Siegel. Hi, Harry Siegel. Hello. Let's jump right in with some of the news from a jam-packed end of summer week in New York City. So a 127-year-old water main broke, sending commuters, including myself, into a frustrating tailspin of find a working train line so you can get to work without being incredibly late. A federal judge has also found that Rudy Giuliani is liable for defamation for falsely accusing two Georgia election workers of breaking the election, triggering a wave of vitriol and death threats against them. The only unresolved legal question now is what America's mayor will have to pay the women. And I'm going to editorialize and say, I hope it is a lot of money for trying to ruin their lives. I have to go into hiding. Look it up. Two tabloid headlines on Thursday from Manhattan as scary incidents with strangers keep piling up. A woman was shoved to the tracks. Samaritans rescued her after unprovoked attack in Tribeca Station. And just below that, a man waiting for a train on the east side was sprayed and stabbed. With all that going on with the trains, school starts on Thursday. And as the system braces for a possible yellow bus strike, an official scramble to prepare to help what will be more than 20,000 new migrant students with more still coming into a system that had already been struggling to provide bilingual and English as new language support before migrants started arriving in big numbers last year. And lastly, the Biden administration has finally responded to Eric Adams' complaint that they failed to provide a real plan for those migrants or to provide the city with support for them, but not with any new help or any real plan. So rather, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, wrote letters faulting structural and operational issues with the city's response and telling it to do a better job communicating with the rivals, managing their cases, and collecting intake information at migrant intake centers. So all that, Harry, there's more. A couple, couple more to go into a little detail about. Um, the judges halted what remained of New York's legal marijuana program, opening stage in a decision that the Daily News says, quote, marks the potential death spiral for the program that's aimed to put social justice goals first and people and neighbors that have been disproportionately punished by the war on drugs at the front of the line, what were supposed to be lucrative licenses to sell the stuff. The Civilian Complaint Review Board has removed its publicly posted copy of the NYPD's patrol guide, which had included the section telling officers what they're supposed to do with vehicle pursuits. As the city has reported, those shot up more than 600% over the last year as the Adams administration figuratively and literally put the pedal to the metal on the dangerous tactic. So a police spokesman told Streetblock, which reported this change, that some pages of the guide aren't public, despite a city council law saying the guide has to be public for the most part, quote, due to tactical operational concerns about stuff that could provide a roadmap for something to interfere with police operations or endanger the lives and safeties of officers and or the public. I don't know. It's very hard to see how instructions to officers to chase this quote must be terminated when the danger to the public outweighs the benefit of apprehending the perpetrator, end quote, would fall under that exception. It's also unclear why the CCRB would remove that information from public view. They used to have their own copy of the patrol guide on their website. Now they've removed it and just link you to the NYPD's page where the whole chases section is missing. Finally, and staying with things, that basically no one could find now. The numbers are in from the Eric Adams attempt to 
beat the press and instead speak directly to New Yorkers. And, well, the numbers aren't very good. His Get Stuff Done podcast, which debuted in January, has had about 4,000 listeners in total since then. That's fewer over the last eight months than listen to this podcast in any given week. And with that, a reminder to the mayor and his people who are listening that he's got a standing invitation to come on and join us anytime if he wants to communicate with informed New Yorkers about all the work his administration is actually putting in. Chrissy, I'm sorry for the spoiler, but as you said at the very start, sorry, listeners, summer's pretty much done. You just started, however, as one of the inaugural public scholar fellows at the Daniel Patrick Moynihan Center of the Colin Powell School for Civic and Global Leadership at CUNY's City College in New York. Congratulations. And with that, what's on your mind these days uh, that you're thinking about and that New Yorkers might want to be thinking about as they get back up to speed about what's happening on top of our heap of a city? Oh, yeah, that is a mouthful. Um, so, yeah, I'm super jazzed. I'm on sabbatical, so... Uh, I'll be spending it uptown with my CUNY colleagues, which I'm slowly but surely hitting up all the colleges and universities in in the city. I adjuncted at John Jay when I was in grad school at Columbia. I was a fellow, as were you, right? We were the McSilver Fellows at NYU. I'm a tenured professor at Fordham, and now I'm the Moynihan Fellow at CUNY. So I'm just slowly but surely collecting ID cards so I can just use the restroom anywhere in the city basically that's my my master plan get a phd so you can just always be able to wash your hands whenever you need it um so i'm really excited i'm going to work on some projects about black leadership in new york more to come on that as far as the city harry i mean you know i think you know this every time the semester ends and my grades are in and the summer has officially started i like blast alice cooper from my office and it's like school's out for summer there needs to be an equivalent song that's like, we're coming back to school. <laughs> and we're coming back to school with a looming school bus strike. We're coming back to school with crumbling infrastructure where, you know, the water main break, not only was it a waste of water and resources, but, you know, coming from Brooklyn into, I to get into Northern Manhattan. I mean, I'm an able-bodied person, so I could get off at certain subway stops and walk several blocks to another to reconnect and do things like that. But I, I was really thinking about people who aren't as able-bodied, aren't as flexible, um, you know, have strollers. You know, if it were a different time of day, I, I would have just hopped in an Uber because I financially can do that. Many people cannot. So I think the going back to school coupled with crumbling infrastructure, coupled with, you know, trying to find space for an influx of students who most likely have uh, significant language barriers and will need a lot of resources, not just academic, but also possibly emotional. I'm always, you know, obviously I'm always consciously or pragmatically optimistic because I work with young people. So in my political hat, I'm always pragmatically optimistic, but I am a touch worried about the beginning of the school year because it seems as though we're starting off with limited kind of shaky resources. Um, and listen, I believe in unions striking to get better wages. We have the money in this country. It's just, we have a lot of, we have a greed problem as well. But, you know, if school buses strike and parents are stranded, if parents who rely on public transportation isn't consistent 
you know, and so like a lot of parents, <laughs> as you know, Harry, <laughs> you're on a thin margin every morning where it's like, if one thing goes wrong and multiple things go wrong every morning, right? But like, if one of the big things goes wrong, that really sets your whole day off uh, in the wrong direction. And I just worry about this confluence of transportation, lack of resources in schools and, and just kind of a city and kind of a country that feels like it's physically and spiritually kind of falling apart at the seams. So the city is putting $90 million into schools that are expected to have uh, many more migrants come in. The city doesn't track this for, I think, some obvious reasons of uh, uh, people's immigration status, but they're using families that are staying in shelters as a rough proxy for them. And that money is supposed to go, it's not clear what it's coming from. It's not new money. So it's somewhere else out of the budget, but it's supposed to be going to 300 schools serving high rates of vulnerable children. So that's good. And it's good that it's coming now so principals can plan for it. You know, if you do the math, that comes to $600,000 per school. And of course, that's not money you want to put into anything permanent because it's for this one academic year. And no one knows what happens after that. And of course, the children who are joining the system now are not going to be there only for one academic year. And this does seem like a uh, really significant uh, challenge for what's been a shrinking public uh, public school system in New York. And as, as parents are dealing with, with, with all of these usual challenges, one really interesting thing I just heard from a teacher was talking about what schools have and mostly have not done to catch students up from learning loss during COVID, and particularly in the younger grades where you can't really zoom school the same way. Now, by the time you get to like high school or even junior high school, I think that's a lot easier. And uh, she was saying to me, I haven't seen that much of it. This is someone who teaches uh, special needs students at an elementary school and has been in the system for 20 years, is very smart and wise. But what I have seen are kindergartners and new kids coming in because the ones who had special needs, they weren't having those identified. They weren't getting routed toward PT or OT or any of that. So they're coming in farther behind and with uh, challenges and strains in identifying services for them and without really new money or new focus on doing that. So I don't know. I share some of these broad concerns. I, I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but it does seem like we have really serious challenges ahead financial strains. And I think it's plain, you know, Eric Adams was downtown this morning calling on Washington to do again, to do more with work permits. But it seems pretty clear that that's not the the only or the main issue with, with what's happening with people coming to the city right now. And it also seems pretty clear to me, at least, that uh, that help isn't coming. Uh, as much as Washington ought to be doing, that, that we are going to be left on our own. Uh, uh, the, 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 the ghosting is not uh, subtle at this point. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, one of the the best and worst things that's come out of our politics since our 45th president came to be is that more and more people now understand or starting to understand the interplay and complexities of local, state and national government. Because we had someone in the Oval Office at the time who fundamentally did not understand local, state, national government, didn't care about it, and was just sort of like, I'm a king. I get to like march around and eat, you know, well-done steaks with ketchup on them all day and watch TV. Sure. But a lot of people 
which is like, where, what is happening? And I need to pay attention. Um, I think that goes back to, again, my call every week of like, we need to get better civics in school. But I think going to your point, we have different issues now in school where it's just like, you know, we have students who will be in school with severe challenges of all stripes. I mean, you know, we already have kids who have been in the New York City public school system their whole lives who have severe challenges and they're falling behind. So couple them with kids who have just been through horrific circumstances. Also, our teachers aren't necessarily trained. You know, not every teacher is an ESL teacher. Um, Not every teacher knows how to, you know, communicate with a student who possibly has been out of school, maybe for years at a time. So then that just brings more questions of, you know, do you put a 12-year-old boy in a class with six, you know, six-year-olds? If that's realistically where they need to be. So, or a 12-year-old girl, you know, whatever it may be. So I, I think that we have a lot of, we have a lot of real challenges. I really hope Chancellor Banks will come on the podcast and walk us through sort of the plan and who he has in place to think about multilingual education, not just bilingual education. ESL as ESL is a real thing. I mean, not everyone can just do it. You know, your heart may be in it, but not everybody knows how to teach ESL. Um, and then what do you do with students with severe emotional trauma? And that's New Yorkers and new students coming in from, from different countries. Countries plural also, because don't forget, people who are, who are coming in, they're not all from like the same town in Mexico. They're from several different countries with different political and economic stressors and traumas. You see, so as Adams is pushing for help and saying, I'm the person who's doing my part, where's the whole rest of the system? We have polling in now that unsurprisingly indicates that the migrants who are coming in are not very popular with New Yorkers in this uh, sometimes allegedly progressive, certainly mostly democratic city. Um, so to quickly tick some of those those numbers off, and I wrote a little about this in the uh, the Daily News last Sunday. Um, this poll from Siena statewide has Biden up 13 points over Trump, unsurprisingly. 86% of registered voters in New York City said the recent influx of migrants coming to New York is a serious problem. In the city, 58% say New Yorkers have already done enough for new migrants and should work to stop the flow to just 38% who said New Yorkers should accept new migrants and work to assimilate them into New York. Uh, the numbers sort of go on in that register. Distressingly, most New Yorkers statewide, I believe same in the city, now say the migrants resettling in New York have been a net burden rather than benefit over the last 20 years. So I think the last year has sort of really colored people's perceptions, and that's across the board, like Democrats, Republicans, income levels, white voters, black voters, Latinos are the only notable exception there, with 51% saying benefit and 31% saying burden. But I would like to know your your, your thoughts on this and what, what the city ought to be morally doing and what leadership looks like at the city level when voters don't necessarily want to be providing uh, uh, help or resources 
to the people who are continuing to come. It's it's yeah. a challenging moment. Right, because, you know, when you think of, we talk about this a lot in political science literature, the strain on elected officials, right? And do you sincerely vote or do you strategically vote? And I think that there are a lot of elected officials in this city who sincerely want to do something. You know, they don't want to see people on the street. They don't want to see kids in need. Strategically, some of them, they know who they represent and they know the districts they represent. And some of them recognize that they have to come out a little firmly or forcefully um, to make their constituents feel as though they're still the priority and migrants are not. So I don't, I don't envy the position that many electeds are in. I think you hit the nail on the head and, you know, I've been ringing this alarm for a long time, but probably since I went to camp at 10 years old and I figured this out. Um, there are a lot of people who, you know, like to be progressive in theory, as long as it never, ever touches any part of their life. And I think this is kind of part of that Republican posturing, trying to call New Yorkers bluff on that. Um, we understand that there are a lot of different types of Democrats, especially in New York. We understand that New York is a very complicated political party place. And so a lot of people are registered as Democrats, but that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to a lot of people. But also we have to challenge our notions of like what a progressive person is. Because I think a lot of people love being progressive as long as none of the issues ever touch their lives in any capacity. And I think we're seeing that rubber hit the road. We saw it with the Upper West Side and integration of schools. We saw it when de Blasio tried to have schools integrated a little more uh, class-wise and racially and ethnically with parents literally up in arms, Mississippi style. So here we are, and I'm being very, I'm sort of saying, but not saying what I really want to say. Um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of white New Yorkers specifically and explicitly, and I'm not putting it all on them, but that's the bulk of it, have to check their progressive bona fides. And this is one of those instances that holds up a mirror and a lot of folks aren't passing the smell test. With that smell test, you know, I was just looking at the, uh, the cross tabs of this poll. And there does seem to be a space between the city's political leadership where Adams is scrambling to find uh, shelter for a lot of people coming in to get them in and integrated into schools. He's getting hit on his left often for not doing enough. He's countered to those people. What are you doing to get more help from, from Washington? You know, the city has finite resources, like the uh, the right to shelter, sort of increasingly in interesting ways up in the air. Uh, the mayor's challenging that in court. That's something that's unique to New York City. But like the crosstabs here on migrants and more generally, it's it's even even Democrats are split. Right. As to your point, 48, 40, 48, like to accept new migrants and work to assimilate them versus has already done enough. And should work to stop the flow. Um, but like the the racial breakdown, there's basically whites and uh and and black voters are in almost a, exactly the same place. Latinos are somewhere else. And 
you get into this question of how much elected leadership can or should do to shift public opinion and to demonstrate a better approach and how much they're, they're, they're elected to, to do what voters want. And if there's a big space between what they're doing and what the polls are showing, there's some sort of breakdown in our democratic system, maybe to go along with the breakdown between like a local state and federal authority that a lot of Republicans go back to the Obama years, the Tea Party stuff, Texas constantly suing the federal government. And then took on new and I think much uglier and more aggressive form during the, the Trump years. But this is, there does seem to be some sort of breakdown in terms of the, the people who are representing us at different levels of government, what they're doing, how those sync, and whether or not that those correspond with what voters want. That that, that seems like a, just an unresolved crack in the uh, center of our, our politics and maybe our society. Yeah. And I think what further complicates that, Harry, is that. We're now dealing with a president and a governor who are the same party as the mayor, right? And I think that's the that's what confuses some people. That's what frustrates people, makes them feel like government doesn't do anything because it's like, well, if they're in the same party, then what's like, what is the problem? But we see the different constraints. I mean, listen, Eric Adams knows he doesn't get reelected if people are looking at migrants on the street or unhoused people on the street. Kathy Hochul knows she doesn't get reelected. <laughs> well, she's got bigger fish to fry, but she knows she doesn't get reelected if a whole bunch of migrants start going north to the northern counties where, listen, that's not going to work for her and her reelection chances at all. We saw how Lee Zeldin was sniffing at her heels and he's a loon. So, and then, you know, Joe Biden has his own challenges. Dot, dot, dot. So even Curtis Slee was showing back up, right? Uh, Adams is calling him a buffoon, but he's getting arrested in all these boroughs and all these protests against migrants. And notably, a lot of local elected Democrats are showing up at these things alongside right. angry and sometimes virulent Republicans who are saying, you know, get these people, you know, the right. F out well, of here. Staten Island, right? I yeah. mean, they're just like, listen, not only do we not want them here, we don't want them anywhere. I mean, Curtis Slewa, though, to me, he's like a He's like a, um, I always think of him as Carrot Top. You know, he's got all these props that he's like always pulling out and just, you know, I, I understand that he serves a purpose. Sure. But he like, generate lots and lots of dough to cover his many, many alimony payments. <laughs> I mean, for real, for real. But, you know, I, I caution Democratic elected officials legitimizing him because let's be clear, he also says, horrific vitriolic i would say anti uh anti lots of groups um especially when he was running for mayor i thought some of his rhetoric was really incendiary so i would caution elected sort of you know having these strange bedfellow relationships um because he's he's sort of like a cannon that kind of comes out of the box and or a genie or whatever and you can't put him back in um but yeah i mean you you don't need kind of like that gnat in your ear who's trying to galvanize sort of race-baiting Republicans to the right and frustrated Democrats who strategically need to at least symbolically show that they're, you know, concerned or irate about particular issues. You know, one more thing we got to talk about real quick. Uh, so Eric Ulrich, the former council member, then buildings commissioner, who's just, uh, he's indicted by Alvin Bragg, Manhattan district attorney. A bunch of his friends have also been, who allegedly have mafia relations. 
There's a whole bunch of donors to the Adams campaign who are caught up in this. This comes just after separate set of indictments from Bragg involving straw donors to the Adams campaign. And one police officer, you know, a black officer he served with for 20 plus years. And there's sort of increasing speculation, even as every news story has these to be sure is that none of this is targeting the mayor. Uh, that that this is reaching some sort of uh, of head. That this is maybe approaching Adams himself. Uh, the city reported about a ton of other straw donors to the Adams campaign from the uh, Chinese community, mm-hmm. um, and, and tied to this one Ch- Jmart Shopping Center, who all gave two hundred forty nine dollars each. The Adams campaign says that's just two hundred fifty dollars is an unlucky number in China, but. Weirdly, none of the other campaigns seem to have $249 donations. <laughs> um, I- I'm skeptical that this is actually headed toward Adams. My view is that he played loosely and aggressively enough and won. So the other candidates who played loosely and aggressively didn't win, don't get the same level of mm-hmm. scrutiny. Um, mm-hmm. And he has enough guys around him who sort of screw around with where the margins are. We know Bragg has him on phone tap with Ulrich, reportedly. He's denied this to mayor. Um, saying, uh, hey, watch out, they're investigating you. Um, does he have something to to worry about here? You know, I've heard people around him say, like, if it's not crime or corruption, he's a sure thing for a second term. Right. It seems to me like there's lots of corruption around him. I'm very skeptical any of this is intended to or will roll up to him. Right. Well, here's the thing, though, Harry. Like, how much do New Yorkers care about corruption is the question. Because don't forget, our good friend Bill de Blasio had for real investigations going on and he was about to throw all of his crew under the bus and it was still not only did he get reelected, he didn't even have a legitimate primary challenger no offense as soon as the prosecutor said they weren't going to charge him everyone sort of went away yeah and but the prosecutor didn't say you're completely innocent it was just i don't bring things without you know being airtight and like there's still some loose ends that i can't handle before this election. So, you know, journalists told me before when I was reading these stories and we're, you know, we're talking, I was like, do voters really care about $249? Does it seem because Eric Adams is really good about, you know, being like, I'm being the victim here. So it's like, it seems as though, you know, the young white press is writing these stories that like they're not around him, but they're they're circling around him, but they're not about him. So it's like, do do voters care? And, you know, one journalist was like, sometimes we write stories for prosecutors. I mean, <laughs> sometimes it's not for the public. It's just I'm helping you build a case because something here doesn't smell right. And I will say, and this, was, this has always been my alarm to Eric Adams. It's like, if you look at the history of black mayors in this country, you cannot do what other non-black mayors have done. So, like, your things have to be extra airtight. I'm looking at you, Brian Benjamin. Like, he did what lots of politicians have done a ton of times. Yet he's the one who had to resign, right? So it's like, you you do certain things sometimes because it's like, oh, that's just the way things get done. And then you realize somehow, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, our little friend in Georgia who's the only Black Trump supporter of the 19 indicted who's currently sitting in prison. Like, somehow, sometimes the law doesn't always apply equally. And I think any African-American in this country who's been here for more than five minutes knows that. So that's the piece with, that I'm always scratching my head with Eric Adams, because I'm like, you're smart enough to become the second black mayor of New York City. That's not easy. But then 
it seems as though either you you're very loyal to people that I'm scratching my head and wondering why is it that this person is still in your orbit you know the optics alone you know sometimes optics can become reality so I don't understand how you've clearly been careful. All your boys who do insurance fraud, it's mostly boys. Yeah. And have done prison time and are still messing around in the same games. And you're like, I got to go out, hit the restaurants and party with them. It is striking. It is striking. And, you know, and and honestly, and I've said this many times before, but like the optics of things where it's like, listen, if I can't get to work on time and my kids can't get to school on time because of a water main break, now, granted, you're not in charge of the MTA. Most New Yorkers don't know that. Guess what? Most New Yorkers don't care. They just know, I heard that your ass was out at 3 a.m. kicking it with some rich boys who just got out of prison. And somehow I'm stuck on a platform trying to figure out how I'm supposed to get to my hourly wage job. And now I've just been docked an hour. So that means that's going to be $12 that my family doesn't have. Like, that doesn't look good. So. We know that there's a racial component as to how black mayors are treated, not just by the press, but by prosecutors. So that's check one and check two. Like, I mean, I think what frustrates me, not frustrates me. I mean, I don't, I do have a point in this race. I'm a New Yorker. I think what is my curiosity is that like, but Eric Adams, you know this. Like, I'm not saying anything that this man hasn't known since he was 25 years old, if not younger. So you know how the press is, you know how sort of black male electeds, and by the way, black single male electeds can be treated in the press. And I mean, listen, I don't know if he has a girlfriend or not, but I'm, I'll, I'll say unmarried just to, you know, clarify. I'm not trying to take away <laughs> a girlfriend. Um, but like knowing all these things, knowing that you've had to sort of play the game in a particular way to get where you are, knowing that you played the game without like white political elites. So like, why are you rolling with cats who either just got out of prison, might soon be going to prison, or who you know have federal cases rolling around them because you have enough friends on the streets and on the inside who are like, yo, heads up, seven up, like certain names are rolling across my desk. So like, you're the mayor, you gotta let all that go. And if you can't let it go, you're, you know, don't renege in yourself. Because I'm convinced if de Blasio were Black, he would be renege Jr. So I think I have a Maybe theory Maybe should write here. mayor fan fiction. Oh, man. I'm writing down, don't renege in yourself, which may have to be our title here. But you can almost Brian Benjamin yourself at this point. Just bear in mind all the corruption charges against him have been dismissed. Prosecutors are appealing those, and they have a bunch of ticky-tack charges they're still after. With de Blasio, prosecutors said, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, he fucked around. He didn't find out, because in the course of that, the Supreme Court rolled back the definition of corruption to the point where we don't think we can make a case against him, even as we can make a case against the people who bribed him. Adams is very cognizant of this. He talked a lot about bringing in his own attorneys who would dot I's and cross T's to now his own. Right. And they've both been former federal prosecutors. And I think his view is the public doesn't really care about this stuff as long as you're getting stuff done. Prosecutors don't want to mess around. The Southern District, which is very proud, is sick and tired of taking losses. 
my theory with Albert Bragg is he's almost had no choice but to do some of these. Like he found the straw donors case because he was wiretapping some of these people for their separate involvement in corrupt contracting, uh, construction stuff. And then once you hear it, you got to proceed. But I don't think he was really making an effort to to move this up toward the mayor and to test any of these theories. And I think this has given Adams like comfort that he can play these ways. That yeah, he's seen it over his own life. Black mayors have been nailed for things maybe white mayors would not have been. He's saying the rules have shifted. There's this much room to play. I won. I'm going to play. What are you going to do about it? And to date, that's uh that that's holding up. But uh, you know. A lot can change, and it's, it's yeah. really interesting to me to see how this proceeds and if there's any legal jeopardy or lingering investigations around him. At the moment, it really doesn't seem like there are. Each time one of these stories comes up, City Hall, it says correctly, and then every story notes there's no indication any of this was targeting the mayor. And they say, we're cooperating with the investigators, and hey, the mayor knows lots of people. You know, he's not responsible for what all of them do, and, and people don't pay a lot of attention. I do think that that's probably barring another shoe dropping a big one going to be enough and that the editors who are signing these stories getting a little obsessed with them like here's a catalog of everything adams hasn't been honest about and there's a lot but a lot of it's pretty much all of it's been reported at the time so having like a sixteen thousand word story just basically detailing all this i was talking to you new yorker right and then uh, uh with, with very little new information and the new information is mostly like quotes from the mayor's brother and whatnot and the mayor you know that you're talking with him for months and for many hours to get like those six sentences to pull out and be like, oh, you see, you see, they know it's all bullshit. But the thing is, again, they don't, I think, care. I think this is annoying to them. I think they think the press has been unfair. Adams has started this scholarship fund to get more uh, young black journalists into the press, not incidentally as a form of critique. But, you know, I, I, I don't think this leaves like the, the, the orbit of our podcast of people mm -hmm. are paying very close attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, unless there's something more. Yeah, I mean, I I think you were absolutely right. Um, and listen, it's not that these things don't need to be reported. It's just, it seems like it's kind of like a, a litany without any context. So, you know, a lot of stories, it's like, you would think that nothing is happening in the city just we're all barrel citizens and if every story about the mayor is that he's not doing what he's not doing and then he can go back to his constituents and say well i did x y and z which they didn't really talk about they sort of mentioned it in a passing phase then it does set up when this goes back to when he was first elected right and there are these long stories about his use of the possessive my streets, my city, my car, you know, my trains, my buildings, whatever. But it does, I think, endear him to certain communities when he's going to flag raising number 75 in a month to say, this is our city. Now, here are the things that they don't report about it. But like, this is what we're doing together. Because in my city, I don't want my people feeling X, Y, and Z. And so then it sets up what is an unfortunate but somewhat fair critique of the press, which is, yeah, well, they actually did report on X. They were too busy, you know, doing a full spread on a woman and her ancestry 
who asked a question about housing. Like, what's that got to do with the price of anything? So I think that, you know, this goes back to my point. As much as I disagree with some of the policies and the politics of this administration, I am humbled by the fact that they are um, savvy. Speaking of the stories we tell, um, this pod is co-hosting along with the city and with a friend and former executive producer, Alexandra Wynn, Alex Brooklyn, a storytelling event about a New York Minute this Thursday in the city. Uh, if you're interested in this and uh, attending or possibly telling a story, please do just drop me a line at harry at the city.nyc and I'll do my, my best to be on top of things and share the details. Chrissy's laughing because every week we talk before and I say, this is the week I'm going to get week. back to everyone. Get it together. Well, for the listeners though, Harry, just to help you out, the event is September 7th just so they have a specific date. <laughs> <laughs> Evening of September 7th, um, Alex has held a series of these thirst storytelling salons. They've been pretty wonderful, and we're always trying to get a good cross-section of uh, New Yorkers and storytellers and um, and listeners, and some of those stories will end up being the uh, subject, I hope, of a coming FAQ NYC off-cycle weekend edition, just uh, sharing some of them. and. Uh, should be fun chrissy thank you as always i we reach the end of these things and i have to sort of like do these cutoffs because otherwise we just keep chatting we sometimes just keep chatting after doing the credits uh just stay on the zoom and keep it up <laughs> i know we should well we can't have faq outtakes outtakes the real ones <laughs> nobody would have a job too hot for the internet too hot <laughs> for the public um i adore you shout out to katie honan who is probably in room nine someplace writing like the wind she uh i mean it's very rude of her but here and there she's like um i, I have to do my reporting job <laughs> i'm a job how about that <laughs> f-a-q this has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We're a proud member of the Breakhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popular.com. Our hosts for this episode were me, Christina Greer, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. Thank you for listening, for joining us, and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, I guess be warm pretty soon, and we'll be back soon with more. <laughs>